0: Before I read our scripture this morning, I want to take a moment to introduce our speaker. She is someone that most of you all know, but uh, Rob was like, why don't you introduce Annie? And you, could, you don't have to read off the bio because you know her, and you can add some things that maybe people wouldn't normally know. And I was like, sounds a little dangerous from the pulpit, but why not? Um, I'm always up for a challenge. And um, the first thing you may notice, or what a lot of people ask me is, is it Annie or Andrea? So I've known Annie since I was 10, and we started dating when I was 15. And so for me, she's always going to be Annie. Although over the last five years, Andrea has become an author, and on the front of her book, she puts the name Andrea Lingle. Uh, She'll say in just a moment. I hope she says this again, or I'm going to look like a fool. But um, which won't be the first time. Either is okay. So some things you might not know about Annie: Annie was born in Vail, Colorado, but hails from Ashboro, North Carolina. She's the oldest of three children. She went to Furman for undergrad, has a BA in piano performance. She has a BSN from Duke, uh, an accelerated BSN. She took half the time to do her degree that it took me to do mine there. Infer what you will. She was also one of two recipients of the accelerated BSN program of a a three quarter scholarship. Um, Annie is quite accomplished. Today, uh, over the last five years, Annie has worked to become a writer, an author, and a lay theologian that works who works with us at Missional Wisdom Foundation. And 2018 was a really big year for her. Uh, her first book, Cred- Credulous, came out in April. She co-edited Rooted in Grace, which is a book the Missional Wisdom put out to talk about the way forward, which is happening in February with our call General Conference. Uh, she was a speaker at the Wild Goose Festival, was on... Uh, reports from Spiritual Frontier podcast, and she put the finishing touches on her book Sunrise, which will come out uh, mid-year of 2019. Uh, one, of the, one of the really interesting things about being an author today and a lay theologian is that even though you're a writer, you also uh, have to work to be a speaker. And in a couple of weeks, she'll be one of the speakers at UMC LEAD down in New Orleans, which is an annual conference that's been going on for about 10 years for uh, theologians and Uh, Folks that are trying new things. And so, uh, she's here today to share. And we're really excited to have her. I'm I'm really proud of what she's done and very thankful that you're here. So, our scripture lesson for today comes from the book of Colossians, uh, chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. Hear these words. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bear with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Above all, clothe yourselves in love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in the one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly in you. Teach and admonish one another in all wisdom, and with all gratitude in your hearts, sing psalms hymns and spiritual songs to God and whatever you do in word or deed do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him friends this is the word of God for the people of God thanks be to God
1: That was the hardest part for me. I was always the little girl who would get up at choir rehearsal and I'd have my folder clasped to my chest and then all the papers would come out the bottom because it was invariably upside down. And it would always startle me that other people could manage to walk from one side of the room to the other side without dropping their music. But um, as Luke said, I am Andrea Lingle. You can call me Annie, that's fine. Um, I am a writer and a lay theologian, and I do work for the Missional Wisdom Foundation. Um, Did want to mention, I will be, this is the book, Rooted in Grace, that was put together this year. Um, I'll be doing a book study on this um, in preparation for the call General Conference in February. It does give small groups guidance through developing skills for having difficult conversations And as Methodists, we know that we may have some difficult conversations coming up. And it is our work to do. It is our work to do to learn how to talk to each other and to learn to open ourselves up to the conversations that are coming. Um, So if you're interested in that, um, if you're interested in participating in a group like that, or if you have a group that would like to have its own small group formed around this project. Uh, Patrick Knightsey is helping uh, form these groups. Um, As you heard, I will be presenting at UMC LEAD in January in New Orleans. And um, because I am a writer and not a speaker, I asked Luke and Rob if I could please come and share some of these ideas with you first because you're my family. And I needed a little bit of practice. So I appreciate this opportunity um, to speak with you, um, my dear family. Let us pray. God of grace, walk with us through this journey called life. Give us eyes to see beauty, ears to hear song, and the wisdom to join in. Amen. Merry Christmas. That was, Merry Christmas. Christmas. That's better. We deserve that. We've been on quite a journey. It's been sort of a short journey. Four weeks isn't that long. But it was a journey that required our whole attention, didn't it? The first week of Advent, Rob started off with something kind of big. He said, I'm going to read this directly because it was big. He said, the coming Jesus is the redemptive invasion of the Christ. We should all still be sitting there figuring that one out. But that week we also heard something else. The choir sang the Rudder's Gloria and do you remember the second movement of that piece? I had to write it down, just the title so I'd remember to go back and listen. Go back and listen. The second movement of Rudder's Gloria. There were these little little pieces that Corey played on the organ and they were gorgeous but they didn't finished their task right away, and then the choir came in and it sang these haunting strains that refused to resolve quickly, which is the work of Advent, isn't it? Then we had a real pause, a power is out and the roads are blocked kind of pause. Advent met me in the darkness of the falling night and it held me. I can't quite explain the feeling I had as the night approached but it was like peace falling over my soul. It was a gentle pat of a parent's hand on the back of a fretful infant. It was a hush now, there is no more to be done today. Perhaps this Advent storm which blew in all unaware of our plans and services was an invitation during a season of preparation to sit just a while in the twilight of the year under 16 inches of snow. The next week we heard a call to look up at the uncountable stars and wonder about the first evangelists. Who were they? Were they the shepherds? Were they the wise foreigners? Were they the women who came to the tomb? Incidentally, all those groups would have been people excluded from the inner court of the temple, but that, that's for another day. Of course, when someone poses a question like this, especially Luke, I start thinking, who was the first evangelist? Was it the shepherds or was it light? Was it motion? Was it the irrepressible unfolding of life? When the word who was Christ with God in the beginning was spoken, there was light. Did the light not testify that there was good news? When God created one shade of the word there, bahra means to choose. And it is translated as to create or to shape. Light testified to that which was chosen and shaped by God. And what about motion? As the breath of God hovered over the water, did the motion of the waves testify to the embrace of the divine? And doesn't all that was chosen and called good and very good tell the good news that something insists on life in this world? on the fourth Sunday of Advent, we were asked to consider the revolutionary act of a woman being willing to believe that peace could come in a new way. There was peace, the Pax Romana, and it came with well-paved roads, but those roads were lined with the broken bodies and lives of those they conquered. Among them Sunday, would be Mary's promised son. And yet, she's saying out her yes to what the motion of the lapping waves has been affirming all along. God is here, even in this place, even in this time. And finally, this journey brought us to the man, Joseph, who chose to love ridiculously and abundantly who showed us the place of yes. The taking up of the unfinished, unresolved, unlikely work of grace which is already in place. Adding our yes to the yeses of the stones and the saints that have come before us. And so when the violins and the violas and the cello stilled and Corey shut off the breath of the organ, We blew out our candles, we buttoned up our coats, and we went home full of hope, affirmed, bearing our yes. And then Christmas morning dawned. Truthfully, it dawned a little earlier than I was prepared for it, but it dawned all the same. And we gathered with our family and our children and our friends and our memories and our hopes and our regrets. And some time later, pulling out our chapstick out of our pocket, we pulled out our yes and looked at it fondly, noticing that it's getting a little worn on the top right corner. Then there was the meal to prepare and the cookies to set out. And yes, I'll get you a glass of milk. And no, we cannot have peanut butter balls for dinner, Luke. And there's laughter. Thank you. And there's laughter, and we make sure to steer the conversation away from that. And the meal is delicious, honey. Thank you so much. And yes, I'll do the dishes. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day of Christmas. Again, the sun rose, and a bit later, so did we. But this morning was somehow looser, somehow more untied. It was certainly more untidy. And when we stooped down to pick up those little strips of wrapping paper that get taped to the carpet, our yes fluttered out of our pocket, creased and a little stained. And again, there was evening and there was morning the second day. The third day, while sweeping, we found our yes. We picked it up and regarded it with a little bit of sadness. Would this year be different? Would yes mean something this year? Is there a way forward? The trouble with yes is that it seems like the object of our yes must be transcendent, difficult, or at least story-worthy. Our yeses get adorned with all the hopes that keep our feet pointed to some distant promised land. We layer our yeses with whens and ifs and soon they begin to become heavy. Since we can't do that amazing thing over there, since our arms are already full, since we woke up tired again this morning, perhaps we should just wait until we get it all together, until we can just get up 15 minutes earlier and have our prayer time until we can start volunteering on Wednesdays, until we can start that program. Now every year Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up as usual, usual for the festival. When the festival was ended and they started to return, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But his parents did not know it. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. His mother treasured all these things in her heart. The way of yes sometimes finds you sitting in the temple, discoursing over the finer points of Torah. But mostly, yes asks you to attend to the finer points of something else. Just as we read in Colossians, we are to bear with one another. We are to forgive. And we are to love each other with a love that binds everything together in perfect harmony. It isn't elegant and it isn't difficult to figure out. Yes asks us to be patient and kind. Yes asks us to forgive. Yes asks us to love with love that binds together in harmony. Jesus' yes was staying in the temple and being amazing and scaring the dickens out of his parents, and his yes was being willing to return to Nazareth and live. Mary treasured all of these things. The brilliant orator, the theologian, the healer, and the little boy who grew wise at the edge of the grain field and brushing against the mustard plant along the paths. Now, we've come to the sixth day of Christmas and we sit here a little afraid that our yes was a bit of hysterics whipped up by the music and the lights and the eggnog. After all, this yes is tattered enough to be last year's yes, re-gifted out of routine. It seems our yes might lack a little perhaps next year. The ideal, the promised land is loaded with what might be if and what should be when. It's the picnic under the shade tree in the golden light of late afternoon. It is the dining room laden with a feast and no emotional baggage. It is every mouth fed every heart mended, and everyone embraced. But that isn't how it is, is it? We have tried to take up our yes again this year, but it is hard not to remember how when we set up the picnic, we put it out on the picnic table, the light was just right. There might have even been butterflies and dandelion fuzz. And I was thinking, you know, this is just right. This is just what I wanted. That moment, the, the ideal has broken in upon me. And then little sweet Annabelle started to cry. And she said, something stabbed me. And I quickly looked at her brothers, but they weren't there. So we went on to the next option. And we looked down at a leaf and there was a caterpillar, about an inch long, a little white caterpillar. Caterpillars are supposed to be the fun things of childhood. You put them in a jar and feed them leaves. They're fuzzy and they have cute little sucker feet. But this caterpillar had stung my baby and as the tears rolled down her face, all I could do was shake my head and pat her back. How many glasses of spilled milk do we wipe off off those beautiful tables? And how many people are hungry and hurting and excluded. Wouldn't it be foolish to hope again this year? And you know, it might be foolish to hope, because what if hope is not what compels us to believe in the promised land, it is what keeps us from realizing that this is the promised land. Now, I don't think we should all embrace despair and start plucking out our, our beards, but what if hoping that someday our yes will come trotting down the road to meet us is giving us the excuse we need to avoid meeting the eye of the one we would rather not love right now? What if our yes is not some noble pursuit, but bearing with each other? What if our yes is not casting the one ring into the fire of Mordor, but forgiving? which is much harder. What if our yes is not to shout in outrage on Twitter about the antics of the other party, but to invite the other party to, I don't know, go bowling? Living into yes is choosing grace, and grace is not found once you get to the promised land. Grace makes it all into promised land. This doesn't mean that it all feels promising. When Colossians calls God's chosen to forgive, the writers, Paul and Timothy, did not mean that in a cheap way. Paul at least understood what it meant to require deep forgiveness, he having cast so many first stones. And the love they describe is said to bind together, not loosely clasp, not gently suggest but bind as muscle and tendon bind together bone. This is living strong, living tough, living in grace. This is no hero's journey, no glorious battle to win. It's not even a race to a manger under a natal star. This is a commitment to the tattered remains of the ideal. Every parent or owner of a Pinterest account understands the difference between the ideal and the real. We think about those little nurseries that we set up. We carefully striped the walls of our first nursery with paint in green and orange and pink and yellow, it was really quite elaborate. We even had an argyle pattern on one wall, it was ridiculous. it was nothing nothing prepared you for the reality of walking back and forth at three o'clock in the morning while you're sticky and the baby's sticky and everybody's crying and you're tough and you stick it out because that's what is yours to do today. Those beautiful layout sets, they're not about the tough work of life, are they? This is meeting the stranger with a smile, but also the one with whom things have been strained. This is taking up the great work of compassion and allowing yourself to be cared for. This is fighting against injustice and listening deeply to those with whom you have nothing in common. Taking up your yes is, as Eugene Peterson says, a long obedience but I would say it is not in the same direction. It is a long obedience in the way of a looping, winding labyrinth, knowing when you finally get to the destination, you will just have to turn around, reversing your footprints. These twists and turns seem redundant and fruitless, but yes is the way of Jesus who bore the Christ, a man who crossed back and forth across the Sea of Galilee. A man who tried a hundred metaphors for exactly the same thing. A man who walked back to Jerusalem every year, just as he did when he was a boy. Soren Kierkegaard wrote a parable in his book, Works of Love, and it goes like this. Suppose there were two artists and one said, I have traveled the world and seen much but I have sought in vain to find a man worth painting. I have found no face with such perfection of beauty that I can make up my mind to paint it. In every face I have seen one or another little fault. Therefore, I seek in vain. Would this indicate that this artist was a great artist? On the other hand, the second one said, well, I do not pretend to be a real artist, neither have I traveled in foreign lands, but remaining in the little circle of men who are closest to me, I have not found a face so insignificant or so full of faults that I still could not discern in it a more beautiful side and discover something glorious. Therefore, I am happy in the art I practice. It satisfies me without my making any claim to being an artist. Would this not indicate that precisely this one was the artist? One who by bringing a certain something with him found then and there what the much-traveled artist did not find anywhere in the world? Perhaps because he did not bring a certain something with him. Consequently, the second of the two was the artist. Would it not be sad too if what is intended to beautify life could only be a curse upon it, so that art, instead of making life beautiful for us, only fastidiously discovers that not one of us is beautiful. Would it not be sadder still and still more confusing if love also should be only a curse because its demand could only make it evident that none of us is worth loving? instead of loves being recognized precisely by its loving enough to be able to find some lovableness in us all, consequently loving enough to be able to love all of us. The way forward into grace is not winning an argument. It is allowing yourself to be seen and seeing the other. The way forward is not changing someone's mind. It is allowing those with whom you disagree to become real through the mysterious work of love. The way forward is not to double down on your doctrine. It is to find ways to enrich our hearts, to allow our doctrines to rot and be digested and become compost, compost that can turn the rockiest ground into soil. To walk forward into grace is to stand between those who are wounded and those who wound, able to call each by name, because we have allowed the slow motion of love to bind us together. Because we have sat at the table long enough to learn the deep name of the other so that we may call them forward, call them toward grace, insisting that the peace of Christ which rules in our hearts is that to which we were called in the one body. We have said yes to knowing the other. We have said yes to knowing ourselves. To take up the task of bearing the holy yes is to commit to the ridiculous work of grace. The way forward into grace is no mystical pathway to some promised land which will be a place of ideal goodness. The way of yes is only giving motion to the grace found in the now. By noticing, by acting, by forgiving, and by loving. Again and again and again. For this is what courage is. To say yes, knowing that you've been here before and you will be here again to say yes when your yes is faded and wrinkled and worn. Now, pull out your yes, take a good look at it. Do not ask what you hope it will be, or what it might be, but what it is. What is yours to do today, now, simply, unimpressively? And let's agree not to ask what will come of it. The way of yes is not a single shoot. It is a network of roots binding us together, rooting us in grace. Amen.